welcome to Horror Makes Us Happy, the podcast where we ask the question, what is it about horror that makes us happy? Your hosts are Steve Becker and myself, Chris Whitman, and you can find out more about us and listen to all the fun recordings at horrormakesushappy.com. Uh, before we get started, a little information for you and the listeners. These are your trigger warnings. We're going to be talking about horror movies, horror culture, dark macabre things, which could involve anything from murder, rape, suicide, child abuse, uh, graphic language, and or violence will ensue. So if that's not your thing, take a seat out. If that is your thing, take a seat, grab some popcorn, and listen to fucked up things. Like that. Like that. And if you're one of our Patreon subscribers, you may or may not have heard me say cunt, I think, four times before the trigger warning this recording. Yeah, yeah, that's a record. <laughs> um, before we get started, uh, next up on the lineup is going to be Billy Pawn. Writer, director, and producer best known for Circus of the Dead, Cowboys from Hell, and Dollboy. This week, we have the pleasure of having with us Kareem Hussein, cinematographer and director of photography, best known for such works as Hobo with a Shotgun, Possessor, and Antivirus. That was, that was the other one, yes. Oh, viral, sorry. Welcome, Kareem. Glad to have you. How you doing? Great, today? thanks for having me. Pleasure. So in this interview, we're going to be... Um, Going through three phases, adult, uh, childhood, adolescence, and adulthood, mm-hmm. coming at you with the same uh, same series of questions. Um, the idea is that, uh, you know, sometimes coming at it from multiple angles triggers memories that you'd forgotten. Sure. But we skipped the uh, spot where you can plug stuff. So do you want to plug whatever it is you're working uh, on? Now? Well, working on a few things. Some of them I can't really talk about, but the probably the latest film I had that has come out recently was uh, is Possessor, the Brandon Cronenberg film. And also I have uh, Simon Barrett's um, slasher picture Seance, which is going to be coming out, I think, in May on Shudder uh, and in cinemas through RLG. So uh, on those films, I'm the director of photography. Nice. Nice. And may I say your rig is quite impressive on your picture on IMDb. <laughs> it is the easy rig uh, as well. Uh, that that was shot in the Jordanian desert. That's still uh, on a war picture that I shot a few years ago. So yeah, back when I was operating oh, cool. the camera, I don't uh, operate the camera so much anymore. Um, just because on certain pictures, you're actually not allowed if you're the director of photography to operate the camera. But um the good news is, really? is I have excellent camera operators who can uh, there you go. do the mm. stuff. So that's that's how it goes. Nice. Always good to have. <clears throat> so I skipped one part. Uh, this obviously isn't meant to be a therapy session. So if there's any questions you want to skip, just say so and move no, no. on. Uh, <laughs> um, but uh, starting with childhood, what are some of your earliest memories of scary things? Well, you know, I started very, very, very young. Um you know, I've always been attracted to the horror genre, always been obsessed with it. And, you know, coming in the family I had, which is, which is a mixed race family uh, in Ottawa, Canada. So it's the capital of Canada. It's a very conservative town. So when mm-hmm. growing up in that sort of conservative environment, you gravitate towards marginal things if conformity isn't particularly interesting to you. Um, mm-hmm. You know, so very young, um, you know, I, I was always different. You know, it's it's like my name was one thing. I was in a pretty white area. You know, my mother is a French Quebecois and my father is from Pakistan. So it uh, already that was quite a culture shock in in the environment I was around. You were a bit different. I mean, there was it was a bit multicultural, but certainly not like it would be today. So you always had the sense that you were different. Something was different about you. 
Um, so that automatically made me gravitate more towards genre pictures. I mean, when I was young, certainly pictures like King Kong, you know, the original RKO King Kong were, were huge influences on me. And I saw them very, very young. Uh, you know, we had, again, the Saturday morning horror host, um, uh, television mm. shows that we had uh, when I was young and this is going back to the seventies here. Uh, mm. but you know, you know, it was called Spooktacular, and we would watch uh, all of these great universal horror pictures, even something like uh, the Edgar Elmer, The Black Cat, which was the first movie that I saw that had very visible sort of sadism in it, which uh, which mm-hmm. was quite something as a child to uh, to see something so intense and so surreal and out there. So that was quite a big influence upon me. I would say The Black Cat was something that really kind of blew me away very young. And then as, as things went on from early childhood, I, uh, I was definitely getting more into Hammer pictures. Uh, I was definitely into the Hammer Draculas, you know, the Frankenstein uh, as that went on and everything. So, you know, I got into the more sort of graphic color goth stuff later, but I, I really started off pretty heavily into the universal stuff. Although one of my earliest memories mm-hmm. is probably watching um a christopher lee uh, dracula i think it may have been actually a censored tv print of scars of dracula if i'm not mistaken mm. um so that was pretty early on that i saw that but i've always been attracted to the horror genre my mother who's wonderful um was always into horror movies and my grandmother uh was really really into horror movies so we would watch them sort of together as a family and uh, it was a very very conservative environment so horror was just a way to almost have friends. Um, I wasn't, you know, somebody who had a lot of friends uh, when I was a kid. Uh, I had a few, but I wasn't that social a child. Uh, I was much more into an internal world. So, when you say it was a way to have friends, what do you mean by that? My friends were, uh, you know, Frankenstein's monster. My friends were mm-hmm. the Wolfman. Ah, okay. My friends were, you know, like those. King Kong, like those were the friends that I related to more than, uh, than, uh, than a lot of human people, <laughs> uh, in a sense that uh, certainly when I was very young, uh, Edgar Allan Poe, um, you know, was, was an absolutely massive influence, uh, in terms of the writing and everything. And, you know, back then, I mean, you read these Stephen King novels now and they're, they're actually quite graphic, but as a kid, I would uh, read them and uh, totally love them and enjoy them. Um, so Stephen King was was a big thing to, um, you know, like, probably preteen is when I started reading Stephen King. Lots of stuff there uh, <laughs> yeah. already in childhood. <laughs> um, although with having a mother and grandmother who were horror fans, I mean, that's, that's a big, uh, I don't know, push in the right direction, I guess you could say. Um, <laughs> yeah, it was wonderful. I that mean, too. you know, I mean, it was always a conflict with my father because he, you know, didn't like horror movies. He, he came from a very conservative background, and I, I get it. Like, conformity was a big deal for him. You know, in order to be accepted in the society, he had to conform to the best he can, while retaining sort of his identity within the uh, the, the Muslim community. But you know, he was always about conform, never stand out excel but don't uh you know he, he was very much into the studious path and i rebelled against that very very hardcore i was a, i was a very difficult child um because i knew very very early on that i wanted to make films i wanted to make movies uh i knew at six you know i would uh, start filming stuff with my father's super eight camera super eight film back back in the day 
and doing little short movies and things like that. So I knew very, very young what I wanted to do, which is difficult for a child because all the other children surrounding you uh, are busy being children. Whereas uh, you are busy being ambitious with uh, with mm. an idea of uh, of this kind of thing, so that also is something that sets you apart from the other kids. When you know this is you know what I'm supposed to do, this is why I was put on this this planet to do this. Um, do you remember the moment you decided that's what you wanted to do, or or learn that that's what you wanted? I mean, to it do? wasn't really a eureka moment. I think it was a very gradual thing. But I think from the minute I saw the universal movies and was so obsessed with them and everything that that's something that definitely you know it was it was pretty clear on that's what i would be doing the reason i ask is because at least from my own personal experience and i know it's my personal experience isn't the same as other people but that's what makes me curious is for me my path in life was very strange in that what i am good at and what i wanted to do there was no college degree Mm. for it when I got out of high school, there were only certificates that you could take to get certified to do something. And my father had pushed me very hard to get a college Mm. degree. Um, And so I hadn't even looked at these other opportunities. So I didn't even know they existed. And in a similar vein, I think looking back on my childhood, I probably, I don't know when, how old I was when I realized that making films was a career choice, but I know that uh, it was not at six years old, for mm. example. Um, and so that's w- when I hear people say, oh, I knew I wanted to do this for a living. That's one of the first things I think of is how did you even know that was a choice? <laughs> like, <laughs> Yeah. I mean, you obviously books, books and, uh, you know, the odd making of show that would come on because, uh, back then mm. in the seventies and, and early eighties, you would occasionally get sort of like, a making of episodes coming up, but there was a lot of mystery to it. Uh, but I was always fascinated uh, by it. But, you know, when I was very young, I got a book and it was weird. It was a children's book, um, about the making of the hammer picture to the devil, a daughter, which of course it took me a number of years to actually be able to see the movie. And, and for those who have seen it, know that there's certain elements of that movie that make it that it's um, surprising. It's still even in active distribution today. Um, it was a really interesting book that really went down to the nitty gritty of all of the elements of production into, into a movie, including budgets, uh, as to what crew members did what and everything. So strangely, that book was absolutely a huge influence on me. And a few years later, when I was, uh, sort of a preteen, um, and time bandits came out, the Terry Gilliam picture, which I, I absolutely oh, yeah. mm-hmm. um, love that one. Got the, uh, got the screenplay and making a book of Time Bandits. And uh, that mm. sort of taught me how to write a screenplay. Uh, you know, I, I tried to make a feature film when I was 12 on film, actually. <laughs> uh, and that's, you know, to this day, I, I can't drive. I don't drive, even though that's going to change. Because at, in the years when all the kids were spending their money um, taking driving lessons or buying cars and things like that. I spent my money on film and, uh, and would always concentrate on that. And then afterwards, uh, you know, it was financial issues really, because when you start off, um, doing this stuff and, and also, you know, I had great conflicts with my father, big conflicts. Um, so when I was 17, it was sort of a question of, I'm going to go and make movies. I'm going to go to Montreal on the Quebec side 
of Canada and uh, there's nothing you can do about it. So <laughs> it was uh, sort of a pretty intense time. So I was, I was really, really broken, basically homeless for a few years and crashing on people's couches and doing odd jobs to scrape by. Um, but, you know, like I never got a high school diploma. I never went to film school, which my critics would say shows in my work. Uh, you know, uh, I, I have zero formal education, like not even like I couldn't get a job probably at Subway, you know, mm. and when you're passionate about something, there's no greater education than obsession. True. True. Yeah. I'm surprised about the children's book about making the hammer horror movie. That's just the concept of having such a book. I wouldn't have occurred to me particularly for a horror movie. Yeah. Like, well, I mean, it's funny when I was, uh, you know, I was wondering cause the book was impossible to find afterwards and years later, uh, you know, was this some sort of childhood fantasy or delusion? Uh, did I dream this, <laughs> did I, did I dream uh, this I book say, up yeah, and I recently tracked it down and, uh, indeed it exists. And indeed it is a children's book about the making of to the devil, a daughter. So, <laughs> you know, go figure. I mean, there's a there's a CGI animated Pixar style uh, Cthulhu or Lovecraft uh, film. So, yeah, you know, for sure. You know, anything is possible. But to the devil, a daughter is a particular uh, flavor of picture. So, yeah. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah, that that makes it even weirder that they would have done a children's book about one hundred percent. Right, like of all the hammer or the the universal things to yeah, choose, yeah. like that. Yeah, it was great. I'm glad they did. I learned a lot about filmmaking just from that book. Out of curiosity, was it a gift from your mother or no? It was uh, the public library. You know, they just had mm -hmm. it in the public library, and we would go to the public library a lot. Uh, we were big, avid readers, so even all those Stephen King books and stuff would come from the public library, Edgar Allan Poe. So you brought up uh, three things I'd like to ask a little more information on, um, going in the order that you mentioned them, uh, not particularly of starting with this but uh sadism like you you mentioned that like you particularly called it out what, what, what's sadism is fun well i mean what it is is it was a, a sort of shock at first mm -hmm. uh of any sort of depiction i, I mean it's uh i believe it's bella lugosi flaying boris karloff or uh, the other way around mm -hmm. but i think it's it's karloff that's attacked attached and uh, Lugosi's uh, tearing his skin off. And uh, it's all off screen, but it's implied. And, uh, and that sadism to me was, was very shocking and, and showed you that, you know, and obviously later on I saw the Herschel Gordon Lewis movies, the, you know, Mario Baba early stuff. And then I got very heavy into giallos and things like that. So, you know, that, and obviously the 80s slasher pictures, which were coming out as, as, as I was a youngster. So, you know, like that kind of stuff opened up that there was, it wasn't just about monsters and, you know, that kind of thing, that there was another side of the horror genre that could be potent, whereas the human being is the worst monster of them all, which is something that I believe in greatly. And, uh, mm -hmm. and in that way, it's not about enjoying the sadism. I'm not somebody who gets a uh, perverse pleasure from watching people or things suffer, but I enjoy movies that confront truth and uh dark truths the best genre pictures are not depicting these things and saying this is a good thing um they're being honest to right. the horror of what is being presented so i don't get a sadistic thrill out of it uh i see the stuff as being a potent commentary on sort of the human condition 
That's why I was kind of struggling to find out how I could ask the question because there were just the word sadism left a lot of gray matter or gray area that, uh, you know, were we talking about like sexual sadism or like you say, flaying is mm-hmm. a different thing. And then there's the whole concept of whether or not you're promoting this or against it, you know, like there's, there was these, all these different <laughs> directions the conversation could go yeah, into. Yeah. And I'm like, where do I, how do I yes, phrase well, this? For the record, <laughs> I am against uh, hurting anything or anyone, <laughs> you know, I think that is bad. Uh, mm-hmm. you know, obviously, um, and, and again, these these elements, you know, are there and placed in films as critiques. I think than the best pictures of uh, what mm. they're what they're portraying. They're not advocates for it. Of course, you know, people could sort of read stuff in any way they want. But I think when portraying extreme graphic elements in a film, it's usually to portray the horror of it, the genuine horror of it, and not saying this right. is great. You know, no, it's terrible. What about surrealism? You had mentioned yeah, that I as love well. It. Um, you know, definitely as I was sort of an early teen, um, I discovered through the bootleg VHS market, the films of Alejandro Hodorowski, um, El Topo, The Holy Mountain. Um, and then when I was a teen, uh, Santa Sangre came out in the cinema and I would go see it rather obsessively. You know, like those particular pictures were a big uh, gateway drug uh, into into surrealistic films. And of course, you know, I was a big fan of Luis Bunuel and Chandelou, a lot of the Bunuel pictures that came afterwards and then got into some of the more 60s psychedelia stuff, you know, Kenneth Anger, all those those pictures. So, you know, and, and all this stuff was done on the sort of underground VHS bootleg world and uh certainly as a teen music was an absolutely massive influence uh, bands like psychic tv coil um skinny puppy you know the industrial nice. music was coming in and that was a part of it and whereas you know these works of art that would test boundaries of what was accepted you know subversion was sort of the beginning of the conversation those uh, particular works of art were a huge influence on me and and you know, particularly for my mm-hmm. first movie that, that took a number of years to get made. But I started as an adolescent. I started a movie called Subconscious Cruelty when I was 19 years old. Um, certainly if I would have gone to college or any of those things, uh, that, that wouldn't have even been on the table. Um, but because I went sort of the underground route um, and met just the right people, um, namely the right person, Mitch Davis, who's now um, one of the people uh one of the main people in charge of uh, the fantasia film festival in montreal now which i worked for as well for a number of years um after meeting mitch sort of uh, you know sort of like meeting uh a member of the family and uh to this day mitch is a member of the family and it uh it was great to meet like-minded genre fans you also mentioned identifying with monsters Yeah, I mean, you know, in terms of identifying with the monsters, the Godzillas, the King Kongs, the, you know, Creature from the Black Lagoon, all that. I mean, I I think that came from just feeling different and and feeling because of sort of my name, my my background and everything. Um, And and also the dynamic of the family, which which was quite different from a lot of the other kids uh, I knew over there, you were always going to be different. And it was just a different sort of world from the kids I would go to school with. When you say family dynamics, are you talking about 
like your father being very conservative and your your mother and grandmother being more yeah, liberal? Yeah, sure, or, all of it. You know, race, uh, political views, you know, all those things. Uh, it wasn't like a, mm-hmm. this awful upbringing or whatever. No, it was fine. You know, it wasn't, uh, mm-hmm. wasn't anything dramatic uh, in that sense. Uh, I made... I know I was probably the creator of the most drama in that family uh, <laughs> from my, you know, rebellion. But, uh, but, you know, I mean, obviously my mother is wonderful and, you know, my father did his best, of course, within what the world he knew and what he thought would be a safe environment to, uh, to sort of have his child or children grow up in. I mean, you know, he was, he was never mean spirited in the things he did. He just thought, he was just confused. He just didn't know how to mm-hmm. deal with it. So I, I don't blame him. You know, it was never violence or anything, you know, but it's just that it wasn't for me. You know, I hated conformity. Right. I hated all that, you know, so. I'm guessing you weren't scared by horror at the time. What was the emotion that you felt when you watched those? Well, I mean, I think the scare is good and never goes away. And uh, no, I mean, I was scared and I enjoyed it. Not in a bad way, though, in a thrilling way, in, a, in an educational mm-hmm. way. You know, it's like when I saw the first uh, Texas Chainsaw Massacre for the first time, it was like this incredible revelation. It was incredibly scary yeah. and, and grounded in reality. Again, the basis of the human being is the worst monster of them all. And also it was a tremendous uh, lesson in film editing and uh, and cinematography, you know, just in terms of camera angles and uh, almost subliminal edits that aren't necessarily done on speed, but done on movement. Uh, so many tight close-ups of yeah, eyeballs. absolutely, which is something that I continue to do a lot, even <laughs> today. <laughs> right? Uh, which is something... Thank you, Toby Hooper, for breaking absolutely. that Absolutely, and, and yeah. you know, Romero's movies as well, Romero's early pictures, just were tremendous uh, lessons in editing. And, you know, just those VHS lessons, because you could pause it and you could step forward and see actually how the editing was done. Uh, which is something I would do. I would re-edit the movies uh, in certain ways just to try different things <laughs> with two VCRs. Uh, <laughs> you know, funny. I would re-edit them, make, you know, just to see if you did this instead of that, what would happen. Hmm. That is interesting. I, I've heard of um, some indie electronic IDM artists, uh, Venetian Snares, for example. Mm-hmm. He uh, One of the first things he did was to make mashups of things by taking two cassette decks and recording them both into a third cassette sure. deck. So you kind of did the video version. Yeah. Of that. Yeah. With, with terrible VCRs that didn't even have what they called <laughs> a flying erase head back then. So there was a rainbow, uh, sort of on the VHS, uh, on every cut, a brief sort of, uh, mm-hmm. digital, uh, analog noise rainbow is all analog. Well, that just gives it that much more uh, flavor. Yeah, no, definitely. Yeah, today, you know, there would be Style. today there would be an app for it, but back then yes. it was considered to be back <laughs> right. then it was considered to be a fault. Today, it is a hipster app. So yes, you know, yes, VHS correct. filter. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, setting aside the cinematographical aspects of it for a moment, um, and is that a word? I made it up. Shut up. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> uh, <laughs> Uh, setting that aside for a second and just focusing on, uh, you know, the initial times that you were watching these horror movies before you maybe had made that decision, which I guess might be hard if you'd made that decision at six, but Mm. I'm just thinking about the thrill aspect of it. I'm wondering what was thrilling to you about it. Well, it's a, it was a rush that was safe. 
you know, you could uh, you could be on this journey. You could confront death uh, without having any actual physical or genuine psychological harm uh, towards you. It was a way of confronting the extremes of the human experience in in a safe environment. It still is, you know. I mean, there's catharsis, a huge element of catharsis involved by going. Uh, of course, as you get older, watching more and more extreme films. Uh, particularly if they're smart and actually have a reason behind them, and it's not just sadism for sadism's sake, which which again isn't my thing. That is in a sort of safe element to reflect and to ruminate on um, the human being. That's yeah. always what it's been about for me. Do you happen to remember anything specific, like specific scenes that thrilled you? Yeah, I mean, you know, like uh, the Universal horror movies, I never thought were scary per se. But Actually, then, I'm sorry. You did answer that one. Yeah. That was the one where you're talking about uh, the guy got flayed. Yeah, yeah. No, that definitely. And it was. It wasn't like it was just sort of like, wow, I can't believe that they did this. You know. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I, I was watching really extreme genre pictures early on, just through uh, VHS bootleg stuff. Uh, you know, and and it was the beginning of sell through VHS sell through when it was sort of affordable to buy things. Um, like my first tape of the Texas Chainsaw Massacre was uh, an LP speed tape. They didn't, it was like a budget uh, from, I think, Video Treasures was the name of the label. Um, Cannibal Holocaust, I got in quite young. How did you find out about this stuff? Um, I found out about them through genre magazines and, uh, you know, Gore Zone had a lot of tips in it. Uh, certainly Mm -hmm. as, as two things. Also a really, uh, influential book for me that I got quite young was, uh, Phil Hardy's Encyclopedia of Horror, uh, which is a British book, uh, that really has a lot of world horror in it. Um, the reviews themselves are pretty snarky and not particularly great, I would say. Um, but the actual sort of technical information in them is, uh, you know, at that time was completely, you know, they talked about Coffin Joe back then, and nobody talked about Coffin Joe uh, and rare magazines. Um, you know, it was the time when everything came through fanzines, magazines, things like that. So did you get those at the library? No, those uh, it was all mail ordering, all ordering in, um, you know, Fangoria was sort of a uh, famous monsters first. And then Fangoria were the gateway magazines. And uh, then you would sort of get into a deeper thing, uh, you know. I guess what I'm trying to get at, I'm, I'm missing, there was mail order stuff. Yep. But you didn't initially find it at the library, so how did you find it at all? Uh, Fangoria. Yeah, there was always the back ads in Fangoria. Was Fangoria at the library? Or no, did you get uh, it, like, magazine new, stands. New? Magazine stands. Regular okay. magazine stands. You could get Fangoria. Right. Um, I'm just trying to understand because at the ages that you're talking about mm-hmm. getting this stuff, even if my, I'm thinking to myself, even as a parent, if I was, uh, allowing horror movies and stuff like that, I was just trying to confirm that, like, did they know that you were mail ordering this stuff or yeah, like, sure. you just didn't. Yeah. I mean, you know, like I, I would watch things like cannibal Holocaust when I was like, you know, 12, it, it wasn't. I wasn't six, you know, watching those movies. In fact, when I was six, the movie, I don't think had come out. Uh, but, uh, you know, like I was, I was like a preteen or an early teen when I was getting into the really extreme level horror movie. That uh, was my other question I was going to ask. Cause you mentioned Texas Chainsaw and Campbell Holocaust. Mm-hmm. And I was going to say, how old were you when you saw those? Yeah, it was probably around yeah, that you time. Know, three. 
probably 12, 14 yeah. uh, before 14, but, uh, you know, probably around 12 ish. I'm going to use that as an excuse for uh, when, when I can show my nephew uh, Texas State song. <laughs> yeah. Holocaust. 12 to 14. For it. You know, and then uh, I remember, I don't remember the exact age. I saw it maybe a little bit later than that, but maybe not. Um, Suspiria was finally released on cut uh, by Magnum mm-hmm. Home Video, which is uh, was Bill Lustig, an early uh, itineration of Bill Lustig's. And uh, it was like uncut on VHS letterboxed. And that was a complete life-changing revelation i was so obsessed with that videotape which i no longer have sadly it got uh it got lost in the shuffle of the year that was Suspiria, you said yeah sure yeah that was a huge what was what was so influential about that uh color cinematography music intensity use Mm -hmm. of Mm close-ups dreaminess uh performance uh everything yeah everything halloween as a child yeah great love it uh <laughs> halloween was actually halloween the I'm, carpenter film and also the 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 holiday both were huge yeah, deals. We're holiday. uh the holiday was was massive you know uh still is my favorite holiday even though i get to celebrate it less and less because mm. frequently i'm shooting a movie or something during it and it's it's not the easiest thing in the world to favorite costume uh costume i mean you know i i loved gore effects and zombies you know uh i was a huge dawn of the dead kid i saw that again that was that was a i saw that young and obviously night of living dead dawn of the dead then later day of the dead were absolute life-changing things did you have a least favorite costume any costume was a good costume i would say uh you know i i I don't have any memories of a halloween costume and it was like this was a terrible idea uh you know any of them were uh any of them were good you know Okay. Was it the process of dressing up or putting on on makeup that you liked, or was it just um, going out and scaring people? You know, going out and scaring people. It was a way to sort of test the boundaries that affected me so much in these genre pictures. You know, not in a malicious way whatsoever, but in a sort of like almost trying to share the fun, even though not everybody thought it was fun. Uh, (laughs) They understood. Uh, They they would share. Yeah. Yeah. The whole like, you know, boo, my face is falling off fun, uh, (laughs) you know, is, is something that not everybody understands, but uh, those Mm. who understand, understand. (laughs) And uh, there you go. Did you have any scary dreams as your, as a child, the reoccurring nightmares type of thing not really reoccurring stuff i mean i think every kid and every adult has scary dreams they're mostly insecurity dreams like everybody there wasn't anything you know i mean a lot of surreal strange dreams that back when i was writing Mm -hmm. uh, ended up as concrete elements of things i was writing absolutely um anything happened in your childhood in the real world uh, that scared you or introduced any fears yeah, I mean, there's a, there's all sorts of stuff that happen. I mean, you know, one of one of the I'm a vegetarian, and one of the things that helped make me not only an atheist but also, uh, you know, somebody who wasn't so down with organized religion or uh, definitely a vegetarian was when I was a kid. Uh, we went in uh, upstate New York, where I had an uncle who lived there, uh, an uncle on my father's side. And they would celebrate Eid. Uh, Eid, uh, of course, a very huge Muslim celebration. And a right. part of that would be to, um, I suppose, the halal kill uh, a goat. 
And of course, these animals we would play with, we would have good times with, we'd love these animals. And of course, we played with this goat. Goats are really nice animals, you know? Uh, and uh, then this, my friend no idea what that, was coming. that we were playing with, then somebody goes and just slits uh, this animal's throat. And of course, mm. in front of us, and of course, blood flies, and it went and landed on my little nice, you know, uh, formal religious, you know, whatever, uh, dress up nice kids, uh, this white shirt, which is again, another lesson, never wear white, uh, and blood <laughs> went and blew on the shirt and, and this poor animal that, you know, we loved, um, was killed right in front of us. And then to make it worse, uh, I don't know quite what the justification of this would be. Maybe again, it's that weird sort of sadistic thrill that some people get, which is disturbing and in my opinion not a good thing um when when doing this kind of thing uh he took out the esophagus of uh of the goat and went put it sideways and started to clamp it open and shut as if it's a puppet for the children and made a little sort of funny noise with it and that's when i thought okay maybe maybe this whole eat thing isn't for me and uh and and you know the whole act of eating meat isn't for me. Mm. And, uh, you know, that was, that was influential for sure, because I yeah. saw real genuine horror and I'll never forget the sound of that poor defenseless animal that it made when it was getting killed. Um, taught me a lot about, uh, you know, what people will do in the name of religion. That's the tip of the iceberg. People do way, 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 way worse things oh, yeah, in yeah. the name of religion, but it's a mm. start, isn't it? Yeah. 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 Yeah, that's uh that's a good one. <laughs> For certain definitions. Yeah, you can't see it cuz this is audio only, but uh when you were describing him puppeting the esophagus, I I was just sitting there gape-mouthed and blinking for like a good 30 seconds. Yeah. Yeah. No, that was that was a pretty big okay. eye-opener when I said, you know, hmm, this isn't for me and this is not good. So, <laughs> you know, it's a not only kill this animal uh but humiliate its corpse nah not a good thing yeah that that last part was <laughs> kind of surprising to me too i didn't i didn't see that coming yeah and i was uh, i was quite young when that happened yeah yeah understandable mm. and i can also see how that ties in with a number of the things that we've already talked about so yeah sure that was an early uh sort of tick the box of ha not everybody is nice are they mm. although um, you know, the flip side of that, I've all, well, also always, how can I say this? I, I've always understood that, you know, historically speaking, we as humans have always been or had always been up until in, until the Industrial Revolution, much closer to our the production of our food in such that, um, you know, people people knew where their food was coming from and they were involved in, you know, the slaughtering of animals and, mm -hmm. and all that kind of thing. And, you know, that, that is one part of the beginning of religion is how do you reconcile the psychological pain of understanding, at least back then when you didn't have a lot of other options, mm -hmm. you know, the, the necessity to kill, to eat. Yeah. Um, no, absolutely. And, and that, you know, I'm not a moralist either. Like I get it. Uh, I know why I, I think today 
Right, but there's still a difference between doing that and making an esophagus puppet. I mean, Correct. You know, like there's ways <laughs> of doing it in the most, uh, you know, I don't, I don't know, respectful. Humane. At least, uh, yeah, yeah, humane. But what is humane if we say the human being is the worst monster? Uh, yes. You know, mm-hmm. uh, exactly. Yeah, I so, I mean, you know, it, it, it's it's not my thing, but I get it. You know, like right. I'm not going to be a moralist about people eating meat or anything like that. Far from it. But, uh, you know, I think that, you know, our primary concern, not only just moral in terms of, you know, the, the horror that that perpetrates and creates, I've seen slaughterhouses, I've seen all that stuff, mm-hmm. uh, is also there's environmental concerns involved with that too, that, uh, that are certainly that pertinent. Too. Yeah. That's another, that's an, that's another story kids, mm, yeah. but, uh, <laughs> that's a different podcast. But, yeah. <laughs> but, uh, but definitely seeing that horror taught me, you know, meat ain't my thing. Yeah. Wow. So that was all just childhood. <laughs> yeah. You know, yes. <laughs> fun, fun, fun. <laughs> so what was left for there to be in, in teenage years? Oh, uh, there's a lot. Uh, there's, there's a lot of so stuff out there. What scary stories or books or movies influenced you as a teen? Well, I mean, pretty much all what we, we had discussed already, you know, I was, I was really big on the Italian horror films. Uh, Hodorowski was a big deal. Uh, you know, Mario Bava, Argento, Lucio Fulci, Sergio Martino, those were all um, heroes of mine as a teen. Uh, you know, the 70s Vietnam, American horror movies, uh, Toby Hooper stuff, George Romero, uh, you know, so many of these indie 70s movies, the big 70s, you know, good studio pictures, The Exorcist, the you know, you, you name it of that era, uh, were, were big influences, obviously. Um, yeah. And then, you know, as a teenager, certainly David Cronenberg was an absolutely huge influence on me and David Lynch as well. Um, yep. both of their works were massive for me. I mean, David Cronenberg being a Canadian, um, was a hero to us all and continues to be to this day. And also is, is just a great human being and, has a you know wonderful family uh now that i work with them uh they're they're absolutely great people um yeah i was gonna say what was that like to have you know Cronenberg as an influence as a, as a kid growing up and now you get to work with yeah him. i mean it's it's great and uh you know i mean there's definitely a generational difference but you know mm-hmm. even uh david is now in his you know heading towards late 70s and he you know is doing another movie and it's a subversive movie and it's a pretty, pretty extreme one. And, uh, you know, we have a lot of just professional, um, you know, through Brandon, who, who's a very close friend of mine and who I work with, um, you know, we, we talk tech, which is fun because, uh, the technology has changed a lot since. And, you know, we certainly borrow some of his, we borrow his tripod an awful lot, <laughs> uh, which is, which is pretty <laughs> fun. Um, but, you know, yeah, it just sort of comes full circle and beyond just the whole fame thing and all that. It just shows you when you're a filmmaker, we all just have the same problems and we're all just a bunch of bums desperate to (laughs) try to get movies done. And you could have this tremendous body of work and be renowned globally, but we we all have the same problems. So, you know, although I'm not, you know, like uh, I rarely speak to him directly, just a simple fact that we're all having, and particularly we're, we're mounting two films at the same time. They're going to be shot sort of in timing back to back. So that, uh, that, that creates a lot of professional, um, sort of just challenges for everybody. 
Yeah, I mean, it takes a lot of equipment, and you don't keep it all in your back pocket, so. <clears throat> no, equipment, but also nope. just politics, casting, well, things like too. that. Yeah. So it's all mm. it's all the same problem. So, you know, like I had the chance to meet George Romero a couple times because uh, he was living in Toronto. Mm. And it's all the mm. same thing. And I worked with, uh, I have a lot of colleagues that worked on Romero's later movies. Um, same thing. We just all had the same problems and continue to have the same problems, those of us who are still with us. So. Yeah. Chris might be more familiar with this, but I'm not. You mentioned 70s Vietnamese horror? Yeah, Vietnam uh, era horror. Oh, okay. So all of the uh, angry, you know, anti-Vietnam things, like Night of the Living Dead, right. Texas Chainsaw, you know, the political stuff, Death Dream, you know, <laughs> all yeah. those I thought you were saying stuff that came out of Vietnam. I was like, I no, 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 no. <laughs> but later on, you know, there's some Vietnamese horror, particularly in the last little while. That's interesting. We know. Well, let me ask it a different way. Were there anything, uh, were there any movies or, or books or stories that you came across in your teens that actually scared you? Um, yeah, sure. I mean, uh, even, even mainstream stuff like silence of the lambs, I think is a very scary movie. And, uh, a lot of great stuff. Um, and even something like Texas Chainsaw Massacre 2 is not scary per se. It's more political commentary. But I thought that was a really smart movie. And that's a very anti-Vietnam movie. Mm. Uh, Vietnam War about, you know, what do you do with the veterans? What do you do with uh, Reaganism? Is very much against <laughs> Reaganism and the whole commerce over everything else. Uh, big business, you know, Texas Chainsaw Massacre 2 is a very anti-big business movie. Mm. Uh, even with its sort of satirical humorous bent. So I, I wasn't blind to those things either. When I was a kid, I definitely saw their leftist influences, which, which I share. Hmm. By the teen years, uh, had you, had you already encountered other people who were into horror at that point? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, definitely not certainly in terms of people I knew physically, not, um, not as much, uh, in person, uh, until later teen years, but, uh, you know, Certainly in terms of correspondence, I was corresponding with even some horror fans around the world, uh, you know, corresponding with people like Chaz Ballin, where I would buy videotapes from him, VHS stuff. Yes, it was all illegal and bootlegs, but that's what people did. It was your only access to it. I remember Barry Kaufman from Videomania, also somebody we would, mm -hmm. uh, you know, sort of buy movies from. I got a lot of stuff from him as well. These were all underground bootleg donald farmer uh would would also sell vhs bootlegs a uh, video search of miami <laughs> was another vhs so all those things were sort of a way in and then later um particularly one year uh when i went to the predecessor of what um was a fantastic film festival in montreal prior to fantasia existing which uh the first edition of fantasia was in 1996 uh, but the first real international edition of Fantasia where guests with foreign movies and everything came in 1997. And I was one of the programmers of, uh, of that festival at that time. But prior to that, in 1992, there was a genre festival that lasted two years um, in Montreal. And I took a bus alone, not really knowing where I would stay or what I would be doing uh, to this genre festival. I think I was 17 or whatever. I don't know. 
And uh, I met Mitch Davis and a whole group of friends that are still friends to this day. Uh, people like Pat Trombley, who also has directed some underground genre pictures and stuff like that. And a lot of the core subconscious cruelty team I met at that time, CJ Goldman, who was a great, great friend and also a great special makeup artist for a number of years, who's, who's retired from the business now. But, you know, these people, uh, that's when I first met, okay, this is the family. These are the people that I belong with. So within mm. a year, I had moved to uh, Montreal just like that. was working for Greenpeace, actually, going door to door to try and pay my paltry rent. Back then, you could get uh, cheap rents in Montreal. Mm. And uh, I was uh, sharing, uh, you know, sort of I rented a living room in this sort of dump uh, where a lot of people were junkies surrounding us. It was, it was the early nineties, right? So there was an awful lot of heroin yeah. and, uh, you know, we, we saw a lot of that and, and a lot of extremes of behavior just from that, because I was, it was like literally trying to make movies in the middle of train spotting. Mm. Um, so everybody was a junkie around, uh, except I wasn't because, uh, I just had this obsession with cinema. That's probably what saved my life in that way. I wouldn't even drink. I wouldn't even smoke joints. I was like, full-on straight edge back then uh, because it was the only way to get these movies done. I was the only one who could get it together because everybody was stoned, um, you know, and, and that was sort of like my, uh, my sort of mid to late teen years uh, being around then and making super eight sort of underground movies within then. And then at one point with Mitch, uh, we were able to gather together some cash to, uh, to, you know, and Mitch, you know, was, 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 was able to get things done. Uh, and we just started subconscious cruelty, but it wasn't, uh, you know, and this was all on film back then. This is not like, it's a lot easier today to do an around genre picture back then. This was on 16 millimeter film. You have to get the equipment, you have to process it. You had to print a work print. Mm -hmm. You have to cut it on film. You cut it on the same big machine stuff that everybody else had. So it was a very, very different machine uh back then in order to make a movie yeah. so yeah that was done that one was done on 16 millimeter then ultimately blown up to 35 millimeter for its uh festival release and theatrical exhibition yeah digital photography and film has really changed the world oh 100 it's changed everything yeah you know the things that we talked about influencing you in your childhood in terms of mm -hmm. um you know subversion and rebellion and um, confronting dark truths. Did any of that um, change in your teen years or uh, underscore it like uh, highlight it? Or, I mean, no, my teen years were just all about that. <laughs> right. That's what it sounded <laughs> and, like. Uh, yeah. And uh, certainly my early twenties were about that too. The shock and everything. It was almost like be just being a carnival barker. Like how extreme can you do something mm. to get a reaction? And, but that was the nineties too. Like that kind of thing was, was sort of what people expected from counterculture and underground stuff and was encouraged. Whereas today that is, it, it's quite the opposite, you know? Um, so that was a byproduct of its era. Like that first movie I did, Subconscious Cruelty was 100% a byproduct of its era and was my teen years. It was, it's basically a scrapbook of my teenage obsessions, you know? Um, which today, you know, is absolutely not who I am. Uh, but I respect it and I don't deny it because that was just a product of its era. Right. You know? Yeah. I, this might be a good time to bring up something that didn't get brought up in a previous call that we had. I think it was with Scott Shermer. 
Um, he was talking about how horror changes over decades. I remember reading somewhere something that I thought was very true, which was you can kind of gauge in large part where society is and what's important to society as a whole by looking at what kind of horror is being made because what winds up happening is, okay, you've got something that's terrifying to a society at this stage. And then maybe 10 years later, you get over that and you realize that there was nothing to be afraid of there. So now you Mm -hmm. make spoofs of those movies and you know, maybe another 10 years past that. Now you're kind of nostalgic about the thing that you used to be afraid of or making fun of it. And so now you get the throwback stuff. Um, Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. It's the cycles of nostalgia, right? It's uh, that's what comes through. And horror movies are absolutely a mirror of the politics and social concerns of, of of the current time and always have been and always will be, I believe. Hmm. And uh, that's why, you know, what was shocking and subversive and whatever 90 stuff is now just seen as sort of like kind of uh, hilariously naive in a sense, mm. uh, <laughs> you know, and, and what was considered to be incredibly shocking in the sixties is not at all. Um, or what we were worried was going to happen. Hasn't come to pass and probably correct. never will. So maybe a good segue into what kinds of things uh, in the horror genre have scared you as an adult. Same stuff, you know, I mean, I know a good amount of the tricks, the technical tricks uh, in terms of films that, uh, that, that happen. So that's a little, you know, I think, I think I'll get affected more just by the jump scare factor these days in terms of if you want to see me jump in a seat. All right. You know? <laughs> and I know what, I know what's coming. Like I know the tricks and everything, but at the same time I can still enjoy it. If I fight it, what's the point? Cause right. I still want to have a good time. I'm still a horror fan. You know, right. I want to enjoy the thing. So I'm not anti that kind of thing at all. Um, even though, yes, it's, it's done excessively like a lot of things, but I get it. There's also commercial reasons why people do that kind of thing. What scares me is again, the more you get older, the more you have people in your lives that are close to your lives. So it's, it's more, uh, just the loss of, uh, Loved ones mm. is for me the mm. most frightening thing. Mm. Not uncommon. No, no, that's it. You know, I think I think confronting a lot of those fears early on, you know, toughen you up. Uh, you know, my parents, uh, to their credit, were in no way interested in sheltering me or protecting me from things. Uh, they were sort of like deal with a kid, like most of seventies and eighties parents were. And uh, it sort of toughened me up to a lot of stuff. I mean, I I saw a lot of pretty extreme things. And certainly within my teen years, I saw many, many more extreme things, uh, particularly being in that environment of of a lot of drug addicts and things like that. You know, it's made me a little bit less easily impressionable um, towards Mm -hmm. some of those elements of life. Um, But it taught me what's important and, uh, you know, protect those you love. Yeah. Uh, that's, that's important. Yeah. I mean, there are psychological tools that help us deal with trauma. And as you say, that if you learn them early in life, then the things that could traumatize you later in life might change, but you've already mm-hmm. learned the tools to deal with them. So that's the important yeah, absolutely. part. You know, and I think that that's one of the values of the horror genre. It, it can sort of help people in a safe environment process, be confronted by mm-hmm. these things and at least warm them up a little bit 
in case something does happen to you in life, in reality, uh, you've already sort of at least contemplated uh, these types of things. All right. Yeah, yeah, I think that's come up a couple of times as far as uh, the the positive aspect of the the horror genre is it um, prepares you for that sense in real life. Plus, it's also a, a safe escapist. Um, simulation of uh you know what would it be like to to see this graphic violent sure. thing and that's why you know i'm all for portraying violence as a disturbing awful thing in films and when things are desensitized and there's maybe too much cgi placed over the effects so it feels almost like a cartoon that i i i feel is not a great thing and and yeah it's exactly and and much more not helping uh, the scenario to desensitize towards that level of violence. Whereas, you know, if you portray it as genuinely horrible and upsetting, then I think, um, you know, people will, will realize this is not, uh, something good to have happen in reality. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, has anything happened in your adult life that has introduced any new fears that you didn't have before? Well, yeah. I mean, you know, just, just deepening relationships, you know, uh, I have a fiance who I love very much. Uh, you know, if anything would happen to her, it would be the most devastating thing ever. You know, just, uh, I have many great close friends who are incredibly important to me. Uh, my family, my mother, all these, you know, it just deepens those fears. That's the main stuff. The rest of it, I think, you know, we'll deal with whatever comes. And most of that stuff, you don't have much of a choice on anyways. True. True. I think I'm going to skip the rest of the adult questions, get towards some of the end ones. Um, the next two questions are looking back over your entire life and they're not just mm-hmm. about horror. And so speaking in general, mm-hmm. uh, the two questions would be, what is your favorite movie and what movie would you say you've watched more times than any other? And there may, yeah. may be the same movie, <laughs> might be different movies. I, it's tough to say. Mm-hmm. I, I, you know, much like in friendship, uh, I just like to say I have many great friends and I don't like to signal out one because that would be a disrespect to all my friendships. Of course. You know, uh, it is always, hard you to know, know and, yeah. and same in many things and the same thing in cinema. I cannot say there's one movie that I love above all others because, uh, you know, there's just too many of them that I love it's it's really hard decision to uh to make i mean probably one of the movies i've seen the most so some of the movies i've seen the most uh suspiria dawn of the dead day of the dead um those i've seen an incredible amount of times i can't even count Mm -hmm. the the amount of times i've seen those movies and they're still never boring and i could still watch a million times probably dario gento's opera i've seen an incredible amount of times i absolutely love that movie that's a good one you know, again, I can't count the amount of times I've I've seen it or at least visited portions of it. Hmm. You know, um, the reason for those questions are because sometimes they underscore things you've already said, but sometimes they introduce something new that you wouldn't have expected. Like the last person we interviewed said, uh, "Alice in Wonderland." Like, sure, and that brings up this whole other avenue of conversation potentially of you know maybe introducing something new. Um, yeah, no, I, I'm just a horn. What can I say? <laughs> you know? Do you see any common threads about what kind of horror you like? Cannibalism, occult, metaphysical. Again, now we're talking over your entire life. 
Uh, I like creative, man. I, I just like movies that uh, push boundaries that, uh, you know, not only in terms of their content, but also from a technical perspective and also form. Cause, cause that's what I do. I am a technician, right. uh, you know, so those things are what influence me incredibly. Um, movies that have a political bent to them, that have an idea behind the extreme imagery they're portraying. You know, for example, movies like Salo, uh, Pasolini film. Uh, Salo is an incredibly political movie. It's incredibly graphic, has all of this incredibly disturbing stuff, but is also a brilliant picture that packs a wallop. I mean, Salo is another big one for me. I saw that movie, I don't know how many times, uh, in the cinema on 35 mil, because there was a print... Uh, rolling around an uncut print in Toronto, in uh, Montreal, sorry, that as a teenager, you know, they would play just regularly. Um, you know, so a movie like Salo is a huge influence as well because it's political, because it has ideas. It's criticizing something mm. behind the violence. A Videodrome is another great movie that, you know, literally aligning the movie is it has a philosophy. And Videodrome is about plenty of smart, brilliant things uh, in there as well. And that's a huge influence on me also. So, you know, I would say genre pictures that aren't just presenting a superficial presentation of what they want, but have a hidden subtext, uh, are, are the ones that appeal to me the most. Okay. Yeah. Do you have any idea why it is that you like those things? I'm just interested in, uh, all of the extremes of humanity and politics, uh, are part of it. Right. <laughs> yeah. <You know? laughs> yeah. I kind of felt that one was uh, redundant, but I figured, eh, I'll ask <laughs> it anyway. Sure. <laughs> yeah. So uh, now that we've narrowed down, or really in this case, I mean, really just underscored through the whole uh, interview, uh, <laughs> what it is that you like about horror, the sort of last question is why horror? Because do you, do you think you'd be able to uh, approach any of these topics in any other subgenre or any other genre? I mean, uh, you know, it's the sort of thing that, it's a cliche, but I didn't choose horror. Horror chose me, mm. you know, uh, <laughs> it just, the minute I was confronted or, uh, by these images, uh, that was it. The deal was done. This is what my life will be about. And, uh, you know, I've shot movies outside of the horror genre, but, um, they're not my best movies mm. and, uh, and, and not really the ones that, you know, I feel that comfortable in doing. It was good to do them, but, I'm not looking to do uh, really stuff outside of the horror genre. I know that's rare for a cinematographer to say. Um, and I've tried stuff outside of the horror genre, but it's just, you know, it's not really where my full on passion is or, you know, sort of peripheral genres like a dark drama. Sure. No problem. Or, you know, a very black dark comedy. Okay. But uh, stuff that, that is sort of outside of a genre universe, uh, it's just, you know, there are other cinematographers who could probably be much happier doing that kind of thing instead of me. And there's plenty of great cinematographers out there. Right. It's not worth pointing a camera at if it doesn't have my stuff. <laughs> I mean, I've done, you know, some pretty almost disturbing movies that have very little blood in them. But, uh, you know, even to this day, the minute there's blood on set, everybody just gets a little peppier and more excited. <laughs> even, even on, even on the, you know, relatively larger scale movies uh 
you know, the minute there's a gore effect or something, it uh, it still lightens puts the mood. Spring, <laughs> puts a little spring in yeah. people's steps, even though those steps usually it's, end up uh, uh, sticking to the ground with the, <laughs> the with yeah. Syrup. I mean, either carrot syrup or uh-huh. you know, I gotta strongly recommend the the new sorbitol blend of blood that some new people are doing. It definitely is way better than the carrot mm-hmm. syrup, but not everybody has yeah. gone the way of sorbitol. But it's highly recommended. Product placement. <laughs> Sorbitol, <laughs> thanks you. Yes. <laughs> uh, so if we were to summarize, I guess for you, the, the things that you love about horror are, uh, you know, the confronting the dark truths, and but also at the same time, the shock part of it, of rebellion and violating boundaries and making people think about that process. Um, yeah, I mean, that's, that's, that's always a part of it. Um, you know, all of the above, you know, the horror genre is such a wide spectrum. It's not just only about that. It could be about oh. many things. It could be just be about a sense of melancholy, even a sense of romance, a sense of poetry. That's true. Just as how you could have death in a rom-com, you can have rom-com in a horror. So, I mean, it's not, yeah, not saying you can't go in the other mm-hmm. direction. And you might mm-hmm. even say that you kind of have to have some of that because if you don't, if you don't get the viewer to invest in the character, then where's the horror when you lose the character? So. Yeah, absolutely. So, yeah. I mean, uh, you know, and that's within a certain kind of picture. I mean, there's other, you know, pictures where you should not have sympathy for the lead character and then it becomes more of a character study, which is also valuable, although maybe considered to be less of a commercial sort of risk at the bo- you know, or less of a commercial decision mm-hmm. for box office. Right. You know, those movies have a tremendous amount of value too when you're just with a tremendous anti-hero, so to speak, throughout the whole thing and are just analyzing the why. Right. Uh, as opposed to just being with somebody who who is good and then confronted by something bad. Yeah, those are those tend to be a lot more controversial, I think. Yes, absolutely. But mm-hmm. you know, I think controversy is a good thing. Yeah, no, not disagreeing. Yeah. Yeah. Shakes things up. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, I think we got a pretty good summary for you. Before we close the call, did you want to uh, pitch anything again? I can try and remember with the things that you mentioned <laughs> at the start. Uh, I mean, uh, it's uh, it's all good. This has been fun. And, uh, you know, it's, uh, it's definitely good to talk about, let's sort, uh, sort of say, the deeper uh, meanings of the, the genre and uh, what, and of course, horror means something different to absolutely everybody. True. Uh, yeah. It's all affected to everybody and everything is about perception. We all perceive things through our individual sort of life tea sieve, you know, whatever water comes from the top might be the product, but the tea that comes out is individual to all of us. So this is just, you know, sort of my perspective on it, but uh, you know, I think all perspectives are welcome and everybody's uh, you know, contribution to the genre and, particularly what's great about what's going on these days is a lot of people who previously didn't necessarily have voices within the genre are having voices within the genre now. And I think that's absolutely wonderful. Yeah. Um, and I can't wait to see what everybody does. I am, you know, first and foremost, other than a filmmaker, a horror fan. And I'm very excited by uh, a lot of the stuff that's coming out these days. Yeah. One of the reasons that Chris and I wanted to do this is, as you say, there's everybody has their own reason for it. And, Mm -hmm. you know, the mainstream world doesn't necessarily always understand the reasons that 
people have for enjoying this kind of thing. And we thought this would be a, an interesting opportunity to, to talk about those things. Yeah, too. absolutely. Absolutely. But you know, what's funny is horror has become incredibly mainstream, <laughs> you know, some of it these has, days. Yeah. I know, right? Yeah. And, and even some of the most graphic horror movies, like with the advent of, uh, you know, streaming services, some incredibly graphic stuff is coming out. That is, that is very mm-hmm. mainstream, very widely distributed and circulated. So, it's kind of uh, a weirdly exciting time uh, for, you know, extreme horror in a sense that it has become tremendously mainstream. I mean, you'll see stuff that never would have gotten an R rating and uh, in stuff like The Handmaid's Tale, for example, uh, TV shows like that. So it's uh, it's an interesting time. It's very strange, uh, particularly when you grew up in a time of a lot of censorship, like in the 80s, mm-hmm. uh, to see the stuff that never would have passed then you know, win the Emmy Awards. Uh, we ain't in Kansas anymore, Toto. Hmm. Yeah, on a recent uh, <laughs> recent call, I had mentioned, um, I don't know how familiar you are with comic books, but there was a, a comic book series in the 80s and 90s called Grendel. And mm-hmm. there was a, like a mini series called Grendel Warchild that I absolutely loved and I thought would make an amazing movie. Um, mm-hmm. and now I think the world might be ready for it, but prior to the last maybe 10 years, the world wouldn't have been ready for it. And I think the things that really set the foundation, I struggled to remember the second one. I, and the last time I brought it up, but, uh, the dark Knight trilogy and mm-hmm. game of Thrones was the other one that yeah. I was trying to think of because, yeah, uh, the Grendel war child series has both, uh, graphic sex i think in it if i remember correctly and violence so sure um yeah game game of thrones helped uh helped sort of toughen up mainstream uh mainstream genre pictures tremendously because it was such a successful show and really went mm-hmm. places and was really 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 extreme um certainly game of thrones the point where they were like hey um you want to smash a guy's head like a watermelon you know what the show's popular <laughs> enough you can sure. do it. yeah I, I mean certainly uh possessor was greatly helped to mm-hmm. be able to make that movie as extreme as it was we were helped by you know oh, things yeah. like game of thrones that's for sure yeah yeah without things like that in the past like say 10 mm-hmm. years or so i'd, I'd say it probably would have gotten an nc-17 uh possessor did get an nc-17 actually <laughs> and uh oh. and uh and had to be open mouth and ha- had to uh be censored by two minutes or changed by two minutes to there's two versions of it uh thankfully the nc-17 okay. version is widely circulated um it's called possessor yeah i've only seen the yeah, uncut exactly. what did they uh what did they take uh, out all the penises, which I suppose you can imagine, uh, the irony of that. They yeah. cut out, uh, spoiler alert, everybody, uh, the close-ups of the kid's head being blown off, uh, blown out at mm-hmm. the ending. Uh, they cut Andrea Riseborough having a penis. They cut um, some of the stabs at the beginning of the movie, a considerable amount of them. Um, we have to use an alternate take, actually, for a sequence that featured quite graphic nudity and real sex and things like that. But, uh, yeah, so okay. no, it yeah. definitely, so it, it definitely was, uh... got an NC 17, the <laughs> MPA's list of all of their grievances with it was hilarious. It, it, it was like this really long grocery list of things they had a problem with the movie. Um, but thankfully it, it passed ultimately and we fulfilled our contractual obligations and, yeah. and neon Did were, penile... well, I mean, neon were so cool to still widely, 
release the uncut version. We have absolutely nothing to complain about. We were tremendously lucky and and very well served by them. So thank you. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I found that interesting too. Like usually an uncut comes out several months after the original yeah. the initial release. This was just like it's out, it's uncut. Yeah, everyone was confused. Uh, you can find everyone the... was confused as to why it's <laughs> called uncut, why is it called uncut? And then they found out afterwards, oh actually, you know, like for example, Amazon Prime only plays the R-rated version of Possessor. Yeah, they're only huh. playing the censored version. Go figure. I think that's where I saw the uncut version. Of maybe, it. I don't know, maybe a rental. I know in the States when it first came out, it was only the R. They were the only streaming service that uh, that said R only, please. And uh, weirdly enough, mm-hmm. uh, Walmart would only take an R-rated DVD of it. Um, oh, yeah. Yeah, and Redbox and all those things. So uh, there is an R-rated DVD only of Possessor. It's got a red box, ironically. Uh, but if you see it with a yellow cover, it's uncut. Okay. If you're, you know, so curious about that kind of thing. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Collector's item. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think I think the R-rated version uh, is a bit of a collector's item, but it's not one I recommend you really collect. <laughs> you know, so, but, Go out and get the yeah, incomplete yeah, one. Yeah, it kind of ruins the movie if you ask me, but what do I know? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Nothing. Well, you know, it's uh, that that's all subjective. I know I know some people prefer the R version. Mm-hmm. They uh they they prefer to have things more uh, implied and that's cool for them. I mean, if it, you know, we we finished the R version, we went to the hassle of finishing it. So if people yeah, actually yeah. watch it and enjoy it, I guess that's, you know, their prerogative and I can't I can't stand against that, you know. If nothing else, maybe it'll whet their appetite for the uh the more extreme version. Uh, one can hope well thank you very much for being our guest thank you pleasure and thank you to anybody out there listening please uh, do come visit us at horrormakesushappy.com we've got a list there of people that we'd like to interview if you know anybody on the list and can put us in touch please do if you'd like to have somebody added to the list let us know Uh, yeah horrormakesushappy.com 